Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. All right, all right. Good morning, everyone, for another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you solo again. And a little bit tardy, you guys. Um, so it's funny because Kyle and I were, <clears throat> I mean, I was kind of busting his chops um, about not doing uh, not doing any of his will to power our podcasts. And then... Uh, Gave him a little bit of shit for going on vacation, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, coming back here and telling you, apologizing to you guys for, you know, wanting to consistently do two episodes a week and and getting, um, you know, getting get, getting limited to one the, the the other week, and now it's been a week and there's been nothing nothing released by Two Tongues, so I thought I'd owed, owed the audience an explanation, and um, I've got a little bit of stuff to talk about today. Um, I don't know how long this episode will be. Might be a short one, um, but we'll get to that. I, I think. I think what I what I want to do is open with uh, an explanation. So this week, uh, we've been dealing with uh, personal issues in the household. We had a death in the family, and my uh, father in law's passed away. It's been hard on been hard on the house for sure. Um, you know, and there's obviously a lot of things that have to be done in times like this, which is is messed up, man. It's it's messed up. You know, something like that happens and you've got grief and you've got all these responsibilities. Probate, the estate, transferring deeds and titles, cleaning up the house and getting rid of things. It's it's a lot to ask somebody in that situation. So that's sort of what we've been, what we've been dealing with and the reason why you haven't heard from me. Um, and then out of, you know, out of obligation, I wanted to come on. Just let everybody know what was going on. That's the reason why uh, we should be, you know, I don't know if we'll be back up and up and running like we were normal uh, next week, but hopefully we will be. Um, if not, shortly thereafter, uh, we'll, we'll do it. Um, that said, just want to maybe say a word about um, word about my father-in-law. Um, so I mean, I he, you know he's a he's an, an older man, and I only only known him for the last you know ten years or so, a little less than that actually. Um, but, but, a, but a really nice man and, and, um, you know, somebody who I sort of, a you know, I mean, I married his daughter, so I've adopted him as a father and he sort of adopted me as a son as well. And, and, you know, never had any sons. So, you know, I'm privileged to have been in that position with him and learned a lot from him. You know, his dad was a carpenter and he taught me, uh, he taught me how to, uh, how to hang drywall and, and mud. And, uh, you know, he let me make he let me make all my own mistakes. Not like he had a choice, you know. I'm a stubborn, stubborn guy, and uh, you know I'm, I resist 
waiting. You know, patience is used to be a virtue of mine when I was a kid. It's less so today. Uh, but so he let me make all my own mistakes. He let me learn from my mistakes. Um, you know, and I and I I appreciate that. Uh, one thing he taught me was that uh, when you do when you do things like that, you don't have to be so worried about um, making mistakes because those things can always be fixed. Um, and he said that to me a lot. You know, we can always we can always do it again. Um, and that's a that's a message that I take with me, and it, it goes far beyond hanging drywall. Um, so I'll carry that with me. Um, and and then, then the lesson that goes along with that, of course, is to uh, is to take your time and do things right. And uh, and I think that's a lesson I'll take with me as well. Um, another thing, another thing I'll mention just because it's on my heart is, uh, you know, just like my own father, uh, my father-in-law, he you know wants, you know, he wants to he wants to gift me uh, knowledge and um, and uh, you know he he wants to share himself with me and he did that you know with his grandkids and with his daughter and everything else um and and I sort of I'm grateful for that I know part of my part of my personality and who I am today is is to do with the experiences I've had with him over the last eight years or so and um and I think one of the things that was frustrating with him and I and you know I can understand I've got daughters so you know being a father of of daughters and wanting the person who's taking your place, basically, the person who's taking care of them. Um, what, wanting them to be as, as strong and competent as possible. You, you know, this is why fathers always say that their boyfriends are, or husbands are ne- not never good enough for their, for their daughters. Um, and, he, and he tried to make me better, you know, in the ways that he could. And, um, and one, of the things, one of the things that was frustrating with him was, really, because I, I guess I'm just too nice of a guy, you know, and he's like, look, man, there are times in your life where you have to stand up, you have to put your foot down, you have to, um, you know, you have to do the hard thing in that way. And I preach that, doing the hard thing. Um, so that's another thing that I'm, I'm going to continue to work on, uh, you know, and I, I just can't, can't say enough uh, that how much I appreciate the, uh, the guidance that I received from him and, and the, uh, the memories that I've got uh, from him. And, um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what else to say um, about it. Apart from that's the reason why you haven't heard from us. So rest in peace. Um, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. All right, so what do I have for you today? So I told you when we did those last few episodes on ancient Greece and the pre-Socratic philosophers that I was doing that so that I could get to Plato. Um, because, like so many things, Plato is one of those um, famous and super important intellectual um, um, intellectuals, I suppose, that um, that made a huge impact on the world, a huge huge impact on the Western world, to be sure. And the books that Plato wrote are like things like you know, Great Expectations and Moby Dick, like great works of literature that everybody's supposed to have read. Um, I haven't read those books. <laughs> I have not read Great Expectations. I've not read Jane Eyre. I've not read them. Um, I feel guilty about that. I feel like there's a lot of things that I should have got to by now. Um, and that, that brings up another another memory from my father-in-law. He's got a, a really awesome old copy of, um, of uh, Atlas Shrugged on his bookshelf. 
Uh, so my father-in-law was an Ayn Rand uh, fan to some degree, which is which is really interesting because he's a you know a guy that uh, guy that worked a, you know um, a technical job, but a, but a but a you know a blue collar job, a kind of a, a manual job. You wouldn't expect somebody like that, you know, son of a carpenter, um, working a job like that, working hard and working long hours, to have appreciation for for Ayn Rand, but he did. Um, you know, those fortunately are books that I have read. Um, you know, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. Uh, but there's lots that I haven't. And Plato, you know, t- I mean, to my chagrin and I'm, my sort of, you know, I, I guess I feel, I feel lacking for having not read it. I feel a little bit embarrassed to have not read it, especially to be, you know, and I, I'll take that back. I mean, I, I have read a little bit, but I've not really taken a deep dive on Plato, not since college. And here I am preaching to you guys about philosophy and uh, knowing the importance of Plato, have not and not read it. So I started to get into this and then I got sidetracked by, you know, current events, you might say. Um, but I did get a little bit uh, of the way through Plato's Apology. So Apology is the name of this. And I'll remind you, because I want to read some of this, that Plato wrote in dialogue. So all these ancient Greek writers that wrote comedies and dramas, Euripides, you guys might know, and and uh, none of the other ones pop in my head, but there's a, a, a number of them, super famous, um, you know. And even even if you go back to Homer and uh, and think about the way that the bards um, and the minstrels were singing these histories to people, going from town to town, that all of these things were written in story form, and um, you know, like a play theatrically. So a lot of these things are a conversation between people. And I think the reason Plato did that, not only because it's that was the tradition at the time, that's what that's how all the, the comedies and dramas that were uh, the plays that were written were were done, um, but also it allows you to it allows the conversation to be alive a little bit. You know, it's like even though this is in 400 BC, it could be hap- this conversation could be happening today. Um, and I think that goes a long way for people to listen to it and go along with it. As opposed to reading something like Immanuel Kant or Francis Bacon or one of these one of these later philosophers that writes n- not like a conversation but like a matter of fact that writes in a way like a holy book reads. It's like, hey, this is what I found out. This is this is what I've this is what I'm correct about. This is what everybody else is wrong about. And it's like it's like you know some sort of law written in stone. It's not a, it's not a living conversation. Plato writes like that, and it makes it easier to identify. It makes it easier to kind of put yourself in, in Socrates' shoes because Socrates is the main character in all of Plato's dialogues. And in the Apology, uh, this is, I think, the earliest one, um, the reason I started with it. Um, and he talks all about Socrates, in particular the trial that led up to Socrates' death. Uh, you guys might know that story. Um, if you do, you probably know that Socrates was arrested uh, for corrupting the youth. He was thrown into prison. Um, he was given um, hemlock to drink, which is a poison. He was given an opportunity to escape because nobody really wanted to kill him. You know, he was very clearly innocent. And um, as a matter of, um, I don't even know what word to use, as a matter of conviction, I guess, uh, Socrates drank that, drank that poison and died on purpose to make a point. To make a point. Kind of like Jesus died on purpose. To make a point. You know? A lot of similarities between Jesus' story and Socrates' story, by the way. 
Um, in any case, in the apology, he talks about there being two arguments against Socrates. One of them, he says, is an old argument, um, and one of them is um, a newer argument that was from a particular guy. Um, Melitus is the guy's name. He's like, Melitus is bringing these particular charges against me. So he spends a little bit of time trying to dismiss the charges that were brought against him that he says are old charges. They're basically things that people have accused him of, that nobody's coming to the court pointing a finger at him and saying, I accuse him of this. These are just rumors and things that were circulating around. And he spends a little bit of time discrediting those. And then he spends a lot of time discrediting um, Melitus. And <laughs> normally I have commentary, and I want to like... Break, break down these quotes. I want to select the ones that I think are going to paint the picture, read them to you, talk to you about them, what I think about them. I can't do that with this one. At least, at least I'm not, not prepared to do it. And the reason is, as I'm reading through it, it's so good. It's like, like I, if I stop and insert my opinions, like I'm going to ruin the flow of it. And it's so awesome. It's like, like the best John Grisham movie you've ever seen, where the attorney eviscerates the prosecution, eviscerates the prosecution, and it's so obvious that you know that they couldn't be more wrong, and this guy couldn't be more innocent, and he's so skilled at it, and he does it in a way that's it's it's absolutely theatrical. It would make it would make a terrific movie today. All right, so first thing I want to do is. Um, I want to read a couple of quotes from the beginning of the Apology, and then I want to jump into this particular section where he rips Melitus a new one. So look forward to that. All right, so Socrates is defending himself in court, and he says, he says this. He says, And so leaving the event with God in obedience to the law, I will now make my defense. So this is him opening up his defense. I want to point out something here. As we talked about the pre-Socratic philosophers and having have the, the, the picture that they paint of the religious beliefs of the ancient Greeks are very different than what you would expect. And one of the things that, that they do is they talk about God in the singular. God. One God. Not many gods. Not Zeus and Hera and Hermes and all the Greek gods that exist, right? He, he's talking about God with a capital G and no S on the end. God. One God. And this is what Socrates does. So I... I just want to bring this up. He says, And so leaving the event with God in obedience to the law, I will now make my defense. He's not saying, And so leaving the event with the gods. And that's something that you would expect to hear from an ancient Greek. So I just want to point that out. There's definitely, even in Socrates, the biggest influence on Plato, the biggest influence on the Western philosophical tradition, this sort of secret belief of God as singular, and I just want to point that out. That's something that is never talked about. It's it's something that's that's in line with the mystic intuition, and and people pretend that the ancient Greeks were the epitome of polytheistic religion. That they had the the pantheon. That they had all these gods and all these other religions. Sort of uh, borrowed borrowed it from them, like the Romans. Let's say the truth is that's not the truth. And you can see it here in the opening line. All right, so um, just to give you some context in terms of his um, what what he's being accused of, he says this: "I will begin at the beginning, 
and ask, what is the accusation which has given rise to the slander of me, and in fact has encouraged Melitus to proof this charge against me? Well, what do the slanderers say? They shall be my prosecutors, and I will sum up their words in an affidavit. Here it goes. Socrates is an evildoer and a curious person who searches into things under the earth and in heaven, and he makes the worse appear the better cause, and he teaches the aforesaid doctrines to others. He says, I will endeavor to explain to you the reason why I am called wise and have such an evil fame. He says, I will refer you to a witness who is worthy of credit. That witness shall be the God of Delphi. He will tell you about my wisdom, if I have any, and of what sort it is. You must have known, uh, this is somebody's name who I'm going to mispronounce, uh, Cherophon? Let's go with Cherophon. You must have known Cherophon. He was early a friend of mine and also a friend of yours, for he shared in the recent exile of the people and returned with you. Well, Cherophon, as you know, was very uh, impetuous in all his doings. And he went to Delphi and boldly asked the oracle to tell him whether, as I was saying, I must beg you not to interrupt. He asked the oracle to tell him whether anyone was wiser than I was. And the Pythian prophetess answered that there was no man wiser. Cherophon is dead himself, but his brother who is in court will confirm the truth of what I'm saying. All right, so I'm going to stop there. So Socrates is saying, I'm on trial for being an evildoer, for being a curious person. That just means different from other people, right? Who searches into things under the earth and in heaven. So somebody who's inquiring about things that are, that are beyond you know, the, the knowledge of man, of man. Somebody who's asking questions about the supernatural, things like that. And he says, he makes the worse appear the better cause. Um, so it's like Socrates is doing evil. He's convincing people that things that are worse are better than they are. Something like that. He's not being specific about it. And then he goes on to say that he's basically being on trial for, for being proposed to be the wisest of all men. And he's saying, I've never said that. Socrates never said, I am the wisest of all men. But Socrates reminds the court that God did, which is awesome. He says, look, you guys know this, this Cherifon guy. He's one, one of yours. He's, he's an Athenian. Um, he's been with you. And he went to the Oracle of Delphi, and he asked the, the prophetess, he asked the God, who was the wisest of all men? You know, that's that, uh, uh, who was the fairest of them all moment. And God responds, Socrates. Socrates is. All right, so Socrates says, When I heard the answer, I said to myself, What can the God mean? And what is the interpretation of, the, of his riddle? For I know that I have no wisdom, small or great. What then can he mean when he says that I am the wisest of men? And yet he is a god and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. After long consideration, I thought of a method of trying the question. I reflected that if I could only find a man wiser than myself, then I might go to the god with a refutation in my hand. I should say to him, here is a man who is wiser than I am. But you said that I was the wisest. Accordingly, I went to one who had the reputation of wisdom and observed him. His name I need not mention. He was a politician whom I selected for, for examination, and the, re, the result was as follows. When I began to talk to him, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise, although he was thought wise by many, and still wiser by himself. 
And thereupon I tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise, but was not really wise. And the consequence was that he hated me, and his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. So I left him, saying to myself as I went away, Well, although I do not suppose that either that neither of us knows anything really beautiful and good, I am better off than he is, for he knows nothing, and he thinks he knows. I neither know nor think that I know. In this latter particular, then, I seem to have a slightly advantage of him. All right, so that basically sums it up. Um, what Socrates is saying is, look, I know that I don't know anything. And there's all these, all these smart people out there that are considered wise by, by everybody. When I go and I talk to them and I ask them what it is that they know, they're, they're, all, they're all idiots. They're all, they're all people who are convinced they know things they don't really know. And they're all full of themselves about it. At least I, Socrates, know that I don't know shit. And maybe that does make me wiser than everybody else. Because everyone else is convinced that they know things. That they know everything. So that's that um, maniacal arrogance that Kyle and I continue to talk about. That Luciferian arrogance that you, that you read about in the Bible. Um, so, so this is basically it. He's saying, um, you know, he's basically being on trial for going around and rocking the boat and talking to all of these all of these people uh, that are supposed to be wise and um, and asking them questions and making them all angry with him because he's basically proving to them and to himself that they aren't that they don't know the things that they think they know because they can't they can't answer one or two simple questions about it and there's all sorts of examples and he doesn't just talk to the politician although I think it's funny that's where he begins to, to, you know to find someone who proclaims to be wise and ends up being an idiot. Um, because that's, you know, I mean, I don't know, what can you say about politicians? That sounds about right to me, for most of them. So, um, so anyway, he goes on after this, and he starts talking to other people. He talks to religious people, he talks to, you know, community leaders, he talks to, you know, philosophers, all these people that think they know, and one by one by one, he puts them all in the same category as this politician. All right, so that brings me to this bit I want to read to you. All right, where are we? Okay. I'll do my best here. All right, he says, Socrates says, I have said enough in my defense against the first class of my accusers. So remember, those are the guys that, that didn't come to court and point fingers at him, but people that were just spreading rumors about him. So he's, he's put those to rest. Now he says, I turn to the second class. Uh, they are headed by Meletus, the good man and true lover of his country, as he calls himself. Against these two, I must try to make a defense. Let their affidavit be read. It contains something of this kind. So now he's reading their, their, um, what, the, you know, what they're accusing him of. It says that Socrates is a doer of evil who corrupts the youth and who does not believe in the gods of the state, but has other new divinities of his own. Such is the charge. And now let us examine the particular counts. He says that I am, an, that I am a doer of evil and corrupt the youth, but I say, O men of Athens, that Meletus is a doer of evil, and that he pretends to be in earnest when he is only in jest, and is so eager to bring men to trial from a pretended zeal and interest about matters in which he really never had the smallest interest. And the truth of this I will endeavor to prove to you. Come hither, Meletus, and let me ask a question of you. You think a great deal about the improvement of youth? Yes, I do, he says. Tell the judges, then, who is their improver? For you must know, as you have taken the pains to discover, their corrupter, and are, and are citing and accusing me before them. 
Speak then and tell the judges who their improver is. Observe, Meletus, that you are silent and have nothing to say. But, it is not, but is not this rather disgraceful and a very considerable proof of what I was saying? That you have no interest in the matter. Speak up, friend, and tell us who their improver is. He says, the laws. Socrates says, but that, my good sir, is not my meaning. I want to know who the person is, who, is the f- who in the first place knows the laws. The judges, Socrates, who are present in court. What do you mean to say, uh, Melitus, that they are able to instruct and improve youth? Certainly they are, he says. What, all of them, or some only, and not others? He responds, all of them. Socrates says, by the goddess here, that is good news. There are plenty of improvers then. And what do you say of the audience? Do they improve them? He says, yes, they do. And the senators? Yes, the senators improve them. But perhaps the members of the assembly corrupt them. Or do they too improve them? He responds, they improve them. Socrates says, then every Athenian improves and elevates them, all with the exception of myself, and I alone am their corrupter? Is that what you affirm? That is what I stoutly affirm, he says. I am very unfortunate if you are right. But suppose I ask you a question. How about horses? Does one man do them harm and all the world good? Is not the exact opposite the truth? One man is able to do them good, or at least not many. The trainer of horses, that is to say, does them good, and others who have to do with them rather injure them. Is not that true, Melitus, of horses or of any other animals? Most assuredly it is, whether you and Antius say yes or no. Happy indeed would be the condition of youth if they had one corrupter only and all the rest of the world were their improvers. But you, Melitus, have sufficiently shown that you have never had a thought about the young. Your carelessness is seen and you're not caring about the very things which you bring against me. And now, Melitus, I will ask you another question. By Zeus I will. Which is better, to live among bad citizens or among good ones? Answer, friend, I say. The question is one which may be easily answered. Do not the good do their neighbors good, and the bad do them evil? Certainly, he says. And is there anyone who would rather be injured than benefited by those who live with them? Answer, my good friend. The law requires you to answer. Does anyone like to be injured? Certainly not. And when you accuse me of corrupting and deteriorating the youth, do you allege that I corrupt them intentionally or unintentionally? Intentionally, I say. But you have just admitted that the good do their neighbors good, and the evil do them evil. Now is it, excuse me, now is that a truth which your superior wisdom has recognized thus early in life? And am I, at my age, in such darkness and ignorance as to not know that if a man with whom I have to live is corrupted by me, I am very likely to be harmed by him? And yet I corrupt him, and intentionally too, so you say? Although neither I nor any other human being is ever likely to be convinced by you. But either I do not corrupt them, or I corrupt them unintentionally. And on either view of the case, you lie. If my offense is unintentional, the law has no cognizance of unintentional offenses, You ought to have taken me privately and warned and admonished me, for if I had been better advised, I should have left off doing what I only did unintentionally. No doubt I should, but you would have nothing to say to me and refuse to teach me. And now you bring me up in this court, which is a place not of instruction, but of punishment. It will be very clear to you, Athenians, as I was saying, that Meletus has no care at all, 
great or small, about the matter. But still, I should like to know, Melitus, in what am I, af- <clears throat> in what I am affirmed to corrupt the young. I suppose you mean, as I infer from your indictment, that I teach them not to acknowledge the gods, which the state acknowledges, but some other new divinities or spiritual agencies in their stead. These are the lessons by which I corrupt the youth, as you say. He responds, yes, I, that I say emphatically. Back to Socrates. Then by the gods, Melitus, of whom we are speaking, tell me, and the court, in somewhat plainer terms, what do you mean? For I do not as yet understand whether you affirm that I teach other men to acknowledge some gods, and therefore that I do, that I do believe in gods, and am not enti- an entire atheist. This you do not lay to my charge, but only you say that there are not the same gods which the city recognizes. The charge is that they are different gods. Or do you mean that I am an atheist simply and a teacher of atheism? He says, I mean the latter. You are a complete atheist. Socrates says, What an extraordinary statement. Why do you think so, Melitus? Do you mean that I do not believe in the godhead of the sun or moon, like other men? I assure you, judges, that he does not, for he says that the sun is stone and the moon earth. Friend, Melitus, you think that you are accusing an exagoras, but you have but a bad opinion of the judges if you fancy them illiterate to such a degree as to not know that these doctrines are found in the books of Anaxagoras, which are, which are full of them. And so, forsooth that young are said to be taught them by Socrates, when they are not unfrequently exhibitions of them at, at the theater, probably in allusion to uh, Aristophanes, who caricatured, and to Euripides, who borrowed the notions of Anaxagoras as well, as to uh, other dramatic poets. Price of admission, one drachma at the most. And they might pay their money and laugh at Socrates if he pretends to father these extraordinary views. And so, Melitus, you really think that I do not believe in any god? Melitus says, I swear by Zeus that you believe absolutely in none at all. Socrates says, nobody will believe you, Melitus, and I am pretty sure that you do not believe yourself. I cannot help thinking, men of Athens, that Melitus is reckless and impudent, that he has written this indictment in a spirit of mere wantonness and youthful bravado. He has not compounded a riddle, thinking to try me. He said to himself, I shall see whether the wise Socrates will discover my facetious contradiction, or whether I shall be able to deceive him and the rest of them. For he certainly does not appear to me to contradict himself in the indictment, as much as if he said that Socrates is guilty of not believing in in the gods, and yet of believing in them. But this is not like a person who is in earnest. I should like you, O men of Athens, to join me in examining what I conceive to be his inconsistency. And do you, Miletus, answer? And I must remind the audience of my request that you would not make a disturbance if I speak in my accustomed manner. Then he goes on. Did ever man, Miletus, believe in the existence of human things and not of human beings? I I wish, men of Athens, that he would answer and not be always trying to get up an, an interruption. Did ever any man believe in horsemanship and not in horses? or in flute-playing and not in flute-players. No, my friend, I will answer to you and to the court, as you refuse to answer for yourself. There is no man who ever did. But now please answer the next question. Can a man believe in spiritual and divine agencies, and not in spirits or demigods? And Melitus says, he cannot. How lucky I am to have extracted that answer by the assistance of the court. 
But then you swear in the indictment that I teach and believe in divine or spiritual agencies, new or old, no matter, no matter for that. At any rate, I believe in spiritual agencies, so you say and swear in the affidavit. And yet, if I believe in divine beings, how can I help believing in spirits or demigods? Must I not? To be sure, I must, and therefore I may assume that your silence gives consent. Now that there are spirits or demigods, are they not either gods or the sons of gods? Melitus says, certainly they are. But this is what I call the, the facetious riddle invented by you. The demigods or spirits are gods, mm -hmm. and you say first that I do not believe in gods, and then again that I do not believe in gods. That is, if I believe in demigods... For if the demigods are the illegitimate sons of gods, whether by the nymphs or by, some, by, or by any other mothers of whom they are said to be the sons, what human beings will ever believe that there are no gods if there are the sons of gods? You might as well affirm the existence of mules and deny, and deny that of horses and asses. Such nonsense, Melitus, could not have been intended by you to make trial of me. You have put this into the indictment because you had nothing real of which to accuse me. But no one who has... A, a particle of understanding will ever be convinced by you that the same men can believe in divine and superhuman things and yet not believe that there are gods and demigods and heroes. I have said enough in answer to the charge of Melitus. Any elaborate defense is unnecessary. But I know only too well how many are there uh, enmities which I have incurred. And this is, what I will, this is what will be my destruction if I am destroyed. Not Melitus, nor yet Antius, but the envy and detraction of the world, which has been the death of many good men and will probably be the death of many more. There is no danger of my being the last of them. Someone will say, And you are not ashamed, Socrates, of a course of life which is likely to bring you to an untimely end? To him I fairly answer, There you are mistaken. A man who is good for anything ought not to calculate the chance of living or dying. He ought only to consider whether in doing anything he is doing right or wrong, acting the part of a good man or of a bad. Whereas upon your view, the heroes who fell at Troy were not good for much, and the son of Thes, uh, Thetis, above all, who altogether despised danger in comparison with disgrace, and when he was so eager to slay Hector, his goddess mother said to him that if he avenged his companion Patrocles and slew Hector, he would die himself. Fate, she said. And these, and these or the like words, waits for you next, after Hector. He received this warning, utterly despised danger and death, and instead of fearing them, feared rather to live in dishonor, and not to avenge his friend. Let him die forthwith, he replies, and be avenged of my enemy, rather than abide here by the, by the beaked ships, a laughing stock and a burden of the earth. Had Achilles had any thought of death and danger, for whether a man's place is whether the place which he has chosen or that which he has been placed by a commander, there he ought to remain in the hour of danger. He should not think of death or of anything but disgrace. And this, O men of Athens, is a true saying. Strange indeed would be my conduct, O men of Athens, if I, who when I was ordered by the generals whom you chose to command me at uh, Padea and Amphilus and Delium, remained where they pl placed me, like any other man facing death, if now when I was conceived and imagine God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men, I were to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear that would indeed be strange, 
and I might justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods if I disobeyed the oracle because I was afraid of death, fancying that I was wise when I was not. For the fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom, and not real wisdom being a pretense of knowing the unknown. And no one knows whether death, which men in their, in their fear um, apprehend to be the greatest evil, may not be the greatest good. Is not this ignorance of a disgraceful sort, the ignorance which is the conceit that a man knows what he does not know? And in this respect only, I believe myself to differ from men in general, and may perhaps claim to be wiser than they are. That whereas I know but little of the world below, I do not suppose that I know but I know that injustice and disobedience to a better, whether a god or man, is evil and dishonorable, and I will never fear or avoid a positive good rather than a certain evil. And therefore, if you let me go now and are not convinced by Antius, who said that since I had been prosecuted, I must be put to death, or if not, that I ought never to have been prosecuted at all, and that if I escape now, your sons will all be utterly ruined by listening to my words. If you say to me, Socrates, this time we will not mind Antaeus, and you shall be left off and upon one condition, that you are not to inquire and speculate in this way any more, and that if you were caught, caught doing so again, you shall die. If this was the condition of which I should let you go, I should reply, Men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice of teaching um, of philosophy, uh, exhorting anyone whom I meet and saying to him after my manner, You, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, you are not ashamed of heaping up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation, and caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all. And if, you, and if the person with whom I am arguing says, yes, but I do care, then I do not leave him or let him go at once, but I proceed to interrogate and examine and cross-examine him. And if I think that he, is, that he has no virtue in him, but only says that he has, I reproach him with undervaluing the greater and overvaluing the less. And I shall repeat the same words to everyone whom I meet, young and old, citizen and alien, but especially, uh, especially to every one whom I, excuse me, especially to the citizens, inasmuch as they are my brethren. For now that this is the command of God, and I believe that no greater good has ever happened in the state than my service to the God, for I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your person or your property, but first and chiefly to take care about the great greatest improvement of the soul, I tell you that virtue is not given by money, but that from virtue comes money and every other good of man, public as well as private. This is my teaching, and if this is the doctrine which corrupts the youth, I am a, am a mischievous person. But if anyone says that this, is, that this is not my teaching, he is speaking an untruth. Wherefore, O men of Athens, I say to you, do as Antius bids, or not as Antius bids, and either acquit me or not. But whichever you do, understand that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. Ooh, buddy. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, that was scathing. Absolutely scathing. And, and awesome. 
It's fun to read. It's fun to hear. Uh, like I said, just as relevant today, just as entertaining today as it was in 400 BC. Socrates was pulled into court because of some young person's bruised ego who happened upon Socrates, or maybe, or maybe Socrates happened upon his teacher, I don't know, um, and convinced him and embarrassed him publicly that he doesn't know the things he professes to know, or at least not as well as he does. So pissed was Meletus and his crew that he had Socrates picked up on trumped-up charges, accused of the worst types of crimes, just like Jesus was accused um, you know, in, in, in his day and, and crucified for. Um, for for basically the same thing, for corrupting the youth, for presenting religious ideas or truths that were not orthodox. And Socrates died for it on purpose. And that's the greatest part. He's like, look, if you guys will let me go and say on one condition that you just stop making trouble, he's like, fuck that. If you let me go, I promise you I'm going to continue to do what I've always done because it's right, because it's what the gods bade. And, it's, and what Socrates is trying to do is confirm what the oracle Delphi told him, that he is the wisest of all men. And he's not going to stop doing that. Um, and even if, even if it means he has to die many times. I mean, what a badass thing to say to a court full of people. You know, he's like, Socrates was poor. Um, Nietzsche said about Socrates that he was ugly. So he's poor. He's ugly. He's... Uh, going around pissing people off and he's pissing off older people and impressing a bunch of young people and making an enemy of powerful people and and what strikes me is just as just as reading this is entertaining and you know you, you could make this a a mini series or you could make this a movie today the the predicament that Socrates is in is also just as relevant today you've got You've got politicians and religious leaders and media personalities and, you know, all sorts of people who claim to know things and and extract power and money from, from you and I because of it. And what I fear, what I fear the most is that there isn't a Socrates anymore. There isn't a brave Socrates anymore. Somebody who calls these people on their shit Another scary thing is that in the day, in this era of social media and YouTube and the democratization of the media, that there are a billion Socrateses out there, like me and Kyle and so many others. And because there's so many of us, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> nobody listens. And nobody's standing up publicly and putting their neck on the line to make a, to make a statement that all these people who pretend to know what they don't know, uh, Fauci, Biden, Trump, all of them, all of them are guilty of that, to, in one, one way or, or another, that we're dealing with that today. And where's the Socrates? Where's the Socrates? For Christ's sake, where is the Socrates? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. 
thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.